Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU, and Happy New Year. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm in the studio today with uh, Sean Garner, my partner, um, and we've got our other partner in crime on this radio broadcast, uh, Cody Beeson, who's turning dials and, and pushing buttons and stuff, trying to make us sound as good as he can. But uh, we hope that you had a great Christmas. Um, those that celebrate Christmas, we hope that you have a, had a great New Year and that everything went well, that you didn't blow off any of your uh, digits. That's what I was personally uh, worried about. That's why I always light firecrackers with my left hand because I'm right-handed. But we hope you had a great time, and um, hopefully this 2023 will be a great year for you. Sean and I have been discussing over the last few weeks some some um, some theories that have come to us, and primarily my take on this was uh, my concern about government funding. Basically, it's almost tax season. You know, it's coming again right down the pipe, new year, new tax season. And um, I'm always reluctant to pay taxes for the purpose of funding government programs that I don't necessarily agree with. And we know that just about two weeks ago, the federal government, before they took a break, they passed an omnibus bill that they spent over you know trillions of dollars for protecting endangered fish and stuff in, in California and all sorts of goodies that were baked into that. My understanding was it was a 700, no, maybe even more. I think it's double that, like 1,400 page legislation. And uh, they had about a day or so to go through it before they actually passed it. So my guess is that not very many people read it, uh, at least the senators that passed it. And um, so now we're stuck with all these programs that you and I probably don't even agree with. And, and we are still mandated to pay our taxes. And we don't have, we can't say, no, I'm not going to pay taxes. But we, but they can say, well, we're going to use all the money that we get into the coffers for anything we want. And we're going to use it for these programs that you don't necessarily agree with. So it's a difficult uh thing when I pay my taxes knowing that a lot of that's going to go to programs that I don't necessarily believe in. And having set the groundwork for that, Sean, you, you've been really into this carbon uh, dioxide pollution issue um, for quite some time now. And a lot of the information I get about it is from you. And then I go and I, I look at the resources that you've been sharing with me. And, and I think the common misconception, I don't know if it's a misconception. I don't know. We really don't know the science. I mean, uh, when I, when I hear a scientist say scientists, or I hear out there, oh, there's global, global warming. I always take it with a grain of salt, just like I did when we found out about the, the COVID-19 stuff, you know, it's like, oh, well, we're the government. So we know, we know better than you and you have to get vaccinated or else you'll, you'll die or you have to quarantine or else you'll die. And the whole time, it just didn't feel right. And and now, a lot of looking back, you know, two years ago, now we're starting to see, wow, a lot of that was unfounded science, and it was really paranoia that drove a lot of that, that we had to endure. And unfortunately, a lot of people died, and, and a lot of people got hurt. And a lot of our freedoms were taken away. So I'm always, when the government tells me something scientifically, I always take it with a grain of salt. Because really, the field of science is one that's always changing. And 
there's always the, the purpose of, of the scientific field is the scientific method to arrive and test theories that have been promulgated before. We're always testing those theories and refining them or completely upending them because now new knowledge has come to light because of the technological advances we've made in science. And so what we once knew 100 years ago might be completely different because of the technological uh, advances we've made. So when the government says something like we have to reduce carbon emissions by a certain year or date, then I'm, I'm going to dig in my heels a little bit because I don't trust the government's science. I really don't. Maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist, but I, I don't trust their science because I think they have an agenda. Unfortunately, they shouldn't. It's the government. It shouldn't think. It shouldn't have any type of agenda or anything like that. But unfortunately, it does. And that agenda doesn't usually jive with my family and my values. And therefore, I'm going to dig in a little bit and give a little bit of resistance, not enough to go to jail, but enough to question before I just fall lockstep in line. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. In fact, most people, if you think just a dollar and cents perspective, do you think that your money is going to be better spent through your decisions and your autonomy, or is it going to be better spent by giving it to the government because they know more and have more access to research and to the professionals out there that understand everything to use money that's going to be better for society. And I think most of us understand, regardless of what resources the government has, every dollar that we give to the government, 90% of it's going to be wasted. And if we get 10 cents back on the dollar, as far as actual services and, and, and products like roads and infrastructure, then we count ourselves lucky. So we know that the government is notorious for wasting resources when it comes to money why would it be any different when it comes to information and so think for yourselves the information that we can gather by ourselves and that we can communicate when we have free speech and we're not censored whether it's on a social network or internet or emails or any other platform then we can get better ideas out there and we can uh, innovate and accomplish more than any government can do. And, and I think it's merely because the government is a very small population of people. And when you focus that much power and that much authority into a very select small group of people, you're not going to get good ideas. You're going you're gonna to waste the millions of other ideas that are out there that could be contributing to the innovation and the problem-solving component of that. So when we get back to the carbon question, the, the question is this. I guess it's a three-part question. Number one, is the earth warming? Number two, is it caused by mankind? Is it caused by man-made activities? Number three, can we legitimately do something about it to reverse it or stop it? And so... If you answer the first question, is the global is is Earth warming? You, you just look back in history, and and even that it's difficult. There are different studies that say different things, but since the eighteen hundreds, there um, is is fairly um, stable consensus that the Earth is warming and has warmed some 
somewhere between one and a half to three degrees in the past 200 years. So yes, the earth is warming. Number two, did we cause that? Is it caused by the burning of fossil fuels, the industrial revolution, burning of coal and burning of oil and burning of gas and natural gases? Um, That is apparently settled science um, for a lot of liberals and left-leaning individuals. Conservatives, if if you dare to step out on, on uh, that argument, you're going to get punished. And it's, it's kind of like denying an election these days. If, if you deny an election or, or question the results or the protocols that, went, that, that were involved in an election, then uh, you're going to be called a conspiracy theorist and a wacko, and, and anything you say after that point is going to be discredited. So even if you have good factual evidence for your argument, it doesn't matter. You're going to be called an election denier. And right now the, the term that's being coined is a climate denier. And it doesn't matter if, if you are agreeing that the climate is warming. If you don't agree with all the premises that, that it's mankind that is creating the warming and it's mankind that can actually reduce or eliminate the warming, then you're a climate denier. And so anything that you say, any argument that you put forth is going to be discredited. And I think that's, that's a major problem. Um, there's a lot of evidence out there that the earth is warming and has warmed many, many times throughout its history, throughout the billions of years that it's been around. And it did that without mankind participating. And uh, that the warming trend actually began to occur and continued, and the, the warming um, trend is actually ahead of the carbon dioxide that is put into the atmosphere, which is the greenhouse gas. So when we're talking about what comes out of your exhaust pipe, there's a lot of things that can come out of your exhaust pipe. There's um, carbon monoxide, which is poisonous. You know, some people that want to kill themselves, they shut themselves in a garage and turn on the car, and it's they're not suffocating from carbon dioxide. They're, they're being poisoned by carbon monoxide. And that's not the greenhouse gas that the environmentalists are concerned about. It's a poisonous gas, and we don't want to have a ton of it out there, but it's actually, I believe it's less than 1% of the composition of gases that come out of your exhaust pipe. Um, What comes out is CO2, which is about 20%, and then there's about 20% that's actually just steam. And so it's water vapor coming out of your exhaust pipe. Um, So it's CO2 that is the the greenhouse gas that's coming out of your exhaust pipe. And what is a greenhouse gas? Well, what it does is it allows the sun light and uh, the, the warmth from the sun to come in, but it doesn't actually allow it to escape. So it blocks heat from escaping back out into the atmosphere. And so then it creates a warming effect. So there you go, greenhouse gas. Now, I want to take it one step back. When you think of the word alone, greenhouse. What comes to mind? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? For A good thing, right? Right. For nature, for plants, for growing. A greenhouse, the purpose of a greenhouse is to produce a mini little atmosphere where plants can thrive. Now, greenhouse owners typically buy carbon dioxide. They buy it in canisters. And it's because Plants obviously use, they breathe in carbon dioxide. That's what they use to, along with sunlight, to 
create sugars that is necessary for them to have the food to, for them, their growth. And uh, the optimal level of carbon dioxide for them to have starts at 1,000 parts per million. Now, what we have in the atmosphere right now is about 400 parts per million, so we're actually suboptimal. And so a greenhouse will actually haul in carbon dioxide and put more of it into their little um, artificial atmospheres to create a good environment for plants to grow. So if we're pumping it into the atmosphere and in general providing more of this gas that is friendly to plants, then why is that a bad thing? And the, the argument is, well, it's because it's warming the whole earth so much that um, the polar ice caps are going to melt. Okay, well, why is that a bad thing? Why? I know polar bears was that that was really the the picture that captured most people's minds and emotions on the cover of Time magazine. This is what global warming looks like, and it's a starving polar bear and the decline in the the population of polar bears. But in reality, um, polar bears are actually thriving right now. Um, what what was happening was people were going up and hunting polar bears and using them for rugs. And so there were put some re regulations and, and restrictions on the hunting of polar bears. And so their numbers have, have began to thrive now. So it wasn't the melting of the polar ice caps. But that never came out in the news that they were wrong, that it was the melting of the ice caps that was killing off the polar bears. So what is it that's bad about the melting of the ice caps and, and these, these icebergs around the world that is so bad? And, and it almost sounds blasphemous for me to ask that question. Everybody knows it's bad. Of course it's bad. We can't let the ice melt. Okay, fine. Crucify me later. For now, let's just have a discussion. Why? Why is it bad? Why is it bad to have the sea level rise a little bit more? Why is it bad to ha be a little bit warmer? Do more people die from being too hot or being too cold. And statistically, a hundred times more people die from cold than they do of heat. Plants like heat. If we had an extended winter, we'd have a shorter growing period. We'd have less crops. In fact, we're able to grow crops year-round here in Yuma because we're a very warm climate. And uh, so the world round, if, if we were a bit warmer, we could actually grow more crops. If we had more carbon dioxide in the air, the plants would actually be more efficient. Uh, the pores that uh, plants breathe out of, they have to open up wider in order to allow in carbon dioxide. And so the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the wider those pores have to be. And when the pores are open up wider, then they actually lose um, the water. And so they become more drought resistant if there's more carbon dioxide in the air. So we can actually give them less water and produce more drought resistant, hardier, healthier crops if we actually provide them with carbon dioxide. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and I'm in studio with my partner, Adam Hanson, and we're talking about common sense solutions and, and who is in the best position to 
develop systems to provide the actual solution to correct the problems, the government or the individuals, the people in general. And uh, my argument is anything that goes to the government, if we get a 10% return on our dollar or 10% in turn on whatever we invest, whether it's, you know, knowledge or resources in general, then um, we're lucky. And 10% is not a good return. Anybody that's running a household or a business or anything else knows you're going to go bankrupt very quickly when, when you rely on that return. You need more than you put in back. And, and the government doesn't produce anything. So it only is there, it should be only be there to protect our rights. But it seems to be there to be the omnipotent source of knowledge of all that is good and, and healthy for us. And, and we have to rely on it in determining whether or not to um, introduce vaccinations that have just been produced to stave off um, these, whether it's, whether it's COVID or any other um, pandemic that comes along. And I, I think that we're running down a very dangerous path that we rely way too much on the government and uh, give them too much credit for the solutions that they come up with. And we need to rely more on free dialogue and solutions that we can come up with on our own. And so the question is, um, with climate change, because it's not global warming anymore, where they don't call it global warming. I'm not sure why we have to keep changing the term here, but now it's called climate change. And if we continue to produce um, CO2 into the atmosphere, then um, we're going to go down this path where um, we're, we're going to sow the seeds of our destruction. It, we're going to create our own Armageddon. <clears throat> and I'm doubtful about the statistics that the government is putting out about that, or at least that the, the mainstream media is sponsoring so heavily about that. And it seems that um, there is a narrative that is supported and, and they're only looking and they're cherry-picking evidence to support that narrative rather than looking at all of the questions and, and all of the potential solutions. So when I talk to you, Adam, and, and I say, hey, um, what if CO2 wasn't actually a bad thing? What if we got it wrong, that it's not warming the earth out of control, that it is not going to be the element that uh, causes human extinction and extinction of life as we know it on earth. What if it's actually fine to have more CO2 in the atmosphere? Just posing that question in and of itself, what comes to mind for you? Both yeah. on a social aspect and, and you personally. Well, yeah, I, I would be concerned about saying that out loud, number one, because of the the wrath that I would receive. So I probably wouldn't say that publicly. Number one, even if I did believe it. Number two, I, my understanding as a layperson in this conversation, carbon is bad. And that's, you know, CO2 is the devil and it's going to be our downfall. It will kill everything in its path. That's my con that that's off the cuff. You know what I've been made to believe through whatever's promulgated in the media or in, in resources. I've done v very little research here. Um, I've looked at the resources you've given me, but I, prior to that, I'm saying I've, I've done very little research. I've, I can find one YouTube video that says that there is climate change or global warming. I can say, I can find another video to the, that will say the direct opposite and they use different facts and terms. And by, by the end of both videos, I'm like, well, I don't know what to believe now because they are so convincing in, in both those arguments. I don't know if those are true facts or not. I, I just don't know. 
But because it's so overwhelming, the information that we're given one side, I would say lopsidedly, we, we are to believe that CO2 is bad, so much so that our government dollars are going to funding omnibus b- bills to the tune of trillions of dollars that we don't have of our tax money being used on curbing global warming or climate change um, factors that we've been told are factors by the government. So for example, in California, they were supposed to be, they were supposed to be carbon free, let's say um, producing no carbon by what was it? 2030 or 20, yeah, 2030, some some ridiculous number. And so I think their goal there was, Oh, we're going to use solar power. So carbon neutral. So they absorb at least as much carbon as they produce. And so they went on a, on a, a, a manhunt or a, a headhunt and they took out their nuclear plants. They uh, shut down their nuclear plants. They shut down all sorts of different energy creation mechanisms that were producing energy for them and the goal to be carbon neutral by 2030 or 35. I can't remember the, the actual year. And they quickly had to reverse that once they figured out, oh my gosh, solar is not going to be able to power California. Uh, and so that was a big uh, misstep. They still haven't really corrected and they're still in jeopardy. But we saw the same thing in Germany, Sean, a few years ago when they said, we're going to be, you know, uh, producing less carbon. We're going to go all solar here. They put all their, their energy and their funding and their power into solar. And I'm not, I'm not knocking solar. Solar is a great technology, but it does not produce enough energy on the whole that our society really runs on. So either we have to change our lifestyle in such a way that we do not need as much power as we're currently consuming, or we've got to look to other alternatives other than solar alone. And and so now you throw in wind. And once you start going these other alternative routes, which I'm not disagreeing, they, they work in some instances, but they don't produce enough power like a coal plant does or definitely not as much as a nuclear plant does. I mean, we've got Palo Verde plant here up outside of the Phoenix Valley and in Palo Verde, and, and that produces power for California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. We're, we're shipping power all over the place from that one nuclear plant. And it's not even that big. I mean, I've been there several times. My, my grandfather used to work there. He was a journeyman welder. And so he took me around as a teenager, and I would go visit him out there at the plant. And he had a ton of fifth wheels and a ton of RVs because there's just a lot of people living out there from time to time doing things like he did, which was uh, you would travel from plant to plant and do different well. He was a welder, so he, he did um, certain projects. And as he walked me around, I mean, the facilities, they're big. The reactors are big, but they're not that big. I mean, it's not a big compound. To think that that, that is producing enough energy for multiple states is is pretty awesome compared to like what a uh, coal plant would be, be doing or a geothermal or something like that be a much bigger footprint where i grew up in southern arizona and it's still there today it's yeah. still producing power we we're on a coal plant i mean you can see it had several stacks it has several stacks i should speak in the present tense because i remember growing up i that that's where my i knew that's where my power came from you could see it off in the distance the smokestacks, there was always something coming out. I don't know if they're smokestacks or steam. I don't know what was coming out of them. It, it didn't look like smoke. It, it looked more like steam. So I don't know what comes out of it. But 
you could see it. There's, you know, three, three it, or four of those. Yeah, it, it's it's steam. It's a hundred percent steam. Yeah, and and that's the interesting thing because the only thing that feeds it that goes into it is is water. That's what you know is turned into steam that turns the turbines. Um, you've got the the uranium rods that produces the reaction that creates the heat, and uh, then steam is the byproduct. So the footprint that is created by a nuclear plant is majority of it is the construction of the plant itself when you when you put all the cement together then that's mining that is required to to construct that cement and all the steel that goes into it and all the wiring that is uh, components of it and then you got the computer and the electronic components of it there but when you look at the carbon footprint of a nuclear plant compared to a coal or a gas the construction of it is nearly all of its of its footprint whereas a coal or gas it's the actual consumption of the fuel itself so um michael schellenberger is is, is a fantastic uh, resource he, he, he not only a resource but a champion for nuclear energy because he was a prominent member of greenpeace he was he is an environmentalist he continues to be an environmentalist but the thing is he he went off the narrative of most environmentalists and so then he's been essentially disavowed by by uh, that uh, branch of society and uh, he says that the footprint that we leave if we use nuclear energy for all of our energy needs is a coke can for an entire lifetime of an individual living at the standards of an individual in the United States. And you think, how much, how much gasoline did you use individually over Christmas break, right? I probably used 100 gallons of gas. I mean, we went, my, my family went to Hawaii. It's the first time we've been there. And I don't, the, the amount of jet fuel, it shows on your ticket the carbon footprint that you're leaving just by the, traveling over to Hawaii. And so that's a lot of jet fuel individually that we use just to get to Hawaii, even if we sat around and did nothing and didn't drive and do consume any other gas. But um, the point is the amount of gasoline that we're burning individually on a daily basis is immense. And whether that's good or bad is another issue, another question. But uh, the carbon footprint or the overall footprint for um, nuclear is a Coke can per individual, and it's very easy to contain. And it all has been contained. We've actually had no incidences of nuclear waste spillage. We've actually contained it all throughout the 19, I think, late 1960s was the first uh, nuclear plant, 70, 1970s is when it was commissioned, until today. All of the um, disasters, if you want to call them that, regarding nuclear um, energy have been with the production of the energy and essentially the mismanagement of that production. So if that was your question, what's coming out of those smokestacks? It's steam. You could put your face over that and probably get a good facial. No, thanks. Okay. But, uh, getting back to the nuclear issue, so why, and this is a question we've been asking for months now, you know, as we've talked to, you and I have had these discussions, and even on this show, we've talked about nuclear being a great clean alternative and and I scratch my head as to why aren't we pursuing that more? Why isn't the government pushing that? If they truly want to be carbon neutral or carbon deficient, let's say, by a certain year, it seems to me like nuclear is the way to do that because of the techno technological advances, the ability to produce so much power with so little. So what is what's the downside of, of nuclear 
as you were speaking, the first thought that came to mind is, well, if this is the new normal, if we're going to go to nuclear as our as our um, clean energy source, for us, it doesn't look that bad here in the United States. But when you start using an Iran or a Syria, for example, and, and they're going to copy our nuclear model and try and power their countries with nuclear, in order to do that, they're going to have to have uranium. And, and so uranium is going to be the catalyst to nuclear war you know that's that's the bad thing about about uh uranium is that it can be used for big bombs and that those bombs can do incredible damage is that do you think sean that's why we don't push that or is it because of a misunderstanding of nuclear or a um ignorance to the fact that really it's a safe technology when done right uh or we just have this chernobyl mindset that oh man nuclear it's bad it's it's going to blow up and kill us all i i think both those i think that number one the more nuclear plants we have the more, more potential we have for nuclear accidents and i think the media has done a wonderful job of scaring the public to thinking that that's reality and number two that if we're using nuclear products to create energy like enriched uranium or plutonium, then the byproducts of that could be used as weapons. And uh, the reality is quite the opposite. Um, nuclear, as far as a safety record goes, is so much safer than coal. It's so much safer than gas or natural gas. It's even safer than windmills. More people have died maintaining windmills than have died maintaining nuclear plants for the past 70 years, 50 years, sorry. And that is quite a statistic because windmills, number one, don't produce very much electricity. And number two, haven't been around that long and are looked at as basically the symbol of clean energy and safety. But they kill a lot of birds. Yeah, and I was going to say environmentally. I mean, environmentalists should be having a heyday, you know, because of the amount of birds that are killed by those windmills. They have a huge footprint. It takes a lot to make them. It takes a lot of fiberglass to make them. They're, they're very tall when you have to go to maintain them. More people have fallen to their death maintaining windmills than have ever died maintaining a nuclear power plant. So in Chernobyl, the numbers are sketchy at best because, you know, Soviet Union, um, when, when, when Chernobyl blew up, Chernobyl was the only true actual explosion that occurred from a nuclear power plant. And when you look in it and do the actual research it, it turns out that they just, they managed it so horribly that there could have been a hundred different safety measures put in that would have avoided what occurred there. And so it's kind of like saying, well, somebody, you know, um, died in a car accident and, in, and when it was hit, the car blew up in flames and it was a poor design, so we should never travel by car anymore. Well, perhaps we should design the car better. And that's what we've done. And uh, in fact, more people die 40,000 Americans die every year in traffic accidents but we're not going to put that on the table for arguing whether or not we're going to reduce travel we want to travel we want to get to work we want to get to our families we want to get to our vacation spots and if we simply stopped traveling then we could reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that goes in the air and we could also reduce the amount of deaths that occur each year and so from the nuclear standpoint if we're talking about safety it's so much safer than even traveling to work on a daily basis and it's so much safer than any other alternative 
in um, that we have for energy, even solar panels. How many people have died with solar panels? Well, more have died being electrocuted through the installation, through falling off of roofs, installing solar panels. And you think I'm making these numbers up, but if you really look at the actual numbers, it's somewhere between 30 and 50 people actually died in the Chernobyl accident from the actual accident itself. Now, other people say that, uh, no, it's in the thousands because of the cancer, the thyroid cancer that resulted from the um, radiation that was spewed out from Chernobyl. And um, thyroid cancer is very treatable. And, um, well, just because it's treatable doesn't mean that it's it's not a bad thing. And, and I agree with that. But it is very treatable. And People died of that because it wasn't managed properly. We can manage it much better, and plus that is a one-time, one-off event of a very poorly managed, the, the worst managed project in history. With the power plant in Japan, what Fukushima. Fukushima. The people that died there, there were a couple thousand, but it's because they evacuated a lot of nursing homes and put them basically in gymnasiums or, or, or um, stadiums where they didn't have the proper medical equipment for ventilation, and people died. So there's about 2,000 people that died because of that. But it, it was the panic. It was a reaction to what could happen from the Fukushima plant. The Fukushima plant itself, the actual radiation that it caused, nobody died from the radiation from the Fukushima plant. There was one explosion that occurred from um, a hydrogen container, but that wasn't nuclear radiation. And that's where the scare is, the nuclear radiation killing people. So if that's the fear, then it's misplaced. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner in studio here with Adam Hanson. We're talking about global warming and climate change and carbon dioxide and uh, nuclear uh, radiation. So... One, Adam, you asked a two-part question. One was, what are people more afraid of? Is it that uh, there's nuclear radiation that is going to be a result of more nuclear power plants and people will die because of that? Or is it um, the byproduct will be nuclear weapons and, and therefore more nuclear prolifer proliferation throughout other countries and more access to a material that is available to create weapons of mass destruction? Um, the, off the cuff answer to that is currently it only takes about uh, enrichment to 4% of uranium to make it radioactive enough to produce heat that generates the steam to turn a turbine for electricity, 4% for um, a nuclear power plant. And it takes um, uranium enriched to about 80 to 90% to create a nuclear weapon. There's a huge difference between 4% and 80 and 90%. And so if we're concerned about uranium being enriched to become uh, a nuclear weapon, well, if the enrichment is, is, is available and they can do that, then we can actually identify that very clearly. And in fact, Iran is doing that. 
And we're over there right now with the Biden administration trying to negotiate with Iran not to continue to enrich their uranium. Um, we know that the Obama administration had the Iran nuclear deal where they said, okay, fine, you can do um, power plants for nuclear. We're okay with you doing power plants for nuclear, but just please don't enrich it to the point where you can use it for nuclear weapons because you've said very straightforward that you're going to use those nuclear weapons to um, take out and wipe Israel off the map and, you're, and you'll use them for a lot of other um, nefarious objectives that we don't agree with. And Iran says, fine, we won't do that. Well, right now, they're at about 60% enrichment, which is 54% more 56% more than they need to create nuclear energy. So they're, they're certainly not just stopping at the nuclear energy aspect of their nuclear ambitions. They want to create a nuclear weapon. And so they lied. Is anybody surprised about that? I think if there was anybody that was surprised about that, that person needs to be put in the town square with a dunce hat on, <laughs> right? Because obviously they want, they, they have their own ambitions. And so we've got this situation. And nonetheless, even though they lied and are continuing to move forward with this uh, preparation to create a nuclear weapon, the Biden administration is out there. And, and, and Trump, we know, went in and said, no, there's no more Iran nuclear deal. We're not going to um, relieve the sanctions on Iran because Iran is a terrorist country and we're going to treat it as such. And Biden goes in there and says, no, we'll... we'll re-up the um, Iran nuclear deal and we'll also lift the restrictions if uh, Iran will provide us with some oil and and uh, use their voice in OPEC to produce more oil so we can have a greater production of oil outside the United States and hopefully reduce the oil prices, hopefully by prior to the elections in November 2022. And so his administration would look like they were doing a good job. And OPEC said, no, we're not going to increase oil production. And no, we're not going to decrease our um, enrichment of uranium. And so they said no on both points. And he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll go back to Washington and we'll say it was a good talk. <laughs> so that, that's where you're at. So I guess the answer is if countries are dead set on um, enriching uranium and creating a bomb, there are other ways to stop them from doing it. And I think military intervention is really the only way to do it. If, they're, if, they're, if they re really want to create a nuclear weapon, then we can go in like Iraq and we can neutralize that, that situation. Now, whether or not we occupy the country for a long period of time like we did Iraq, that, that's something that is a discussion for another day. I don't think we should, but that's another discussion. But North Korea, you know, they're obviously a nuclear power and they have no good intentions. And uh, we're apparently okay with that. So I don't understand why the rest of us, the rest of the world can't focus more on a very clean, efficient source of energy because we don't want other countries getting access to um, nuclear enrichment technology. And uh, that, that cat's out of the bag. Um, people know how to do it. You can learn how to do it on YouTube, whether or not we allow the resources to be coupled together in these hostile governments is a question for the military. It's not a question anymore for diplomatic discussion, and it's certainly not a question for energy policy. And the drive for clean power, we, air quotes, clean power, 
in other words, or um, limiting our carbon emissions is is going back to your original questions, Adam. What do you think? You asked me, Adam. What do you think about when you hear carbon, the word carbon, or carbon emissions? And and I I responded, well, as a layperson, I would say that's bad. It's really bad because that's what we've been taught, and and that's what's been promulgated. But in reality, I mean, if you look at some of these prominent scientists in the field of carbon and creating CO2 based lasers and things like that, who really know the attributes of carbon. They're, they're the ones saying we need more carbon. We need to, we need the more carbon in our atmosphere would be actually beneficial for the earth. And you, you brought this up at the very beginning of the show, Sean, that when we use the word greenhouse gas, why is that a bad thing? Greenhouses are good things are great things. I mean, you can control the climate and the warmer, the better, and the more carbon there that that's in there and those particular houses, uh, greenhouses, the plants actually thrive. They, they need it. They want it. And if you were to inject more of it into the atmosphere, then our plants would actually grow faster and stronger, become more drought resistant because carbon is, is a good thing. The carbon dioxide, um, they need water, sunlight and carbon dioxide. And those three things will make a, a plant thrive. And if plants are thriving, then we're going to thrive because they put off more oxygen and, and um, hopefully we'll turn our particular area geographically into a microclimate. I mean, that's the potential here. We've seen that done over in, in Australia. We've seen it done in certain parts of Africa and Kenya, for example, where people have set out to plant thousands of trees in their desert, desert landscape, inject some water. If they can find water, and that's really the key there, if they can find enough water to keep these trees growing to maturity, then they've actually changed the landscape of their what what once was a desert landscape or a, a wasteland, and that brings in rain clouds because of the moisture, which dumps more rain and everything. It just thrives. It becomes a microclimate, and uh, that's kind of what you're working on yourself, huh, Sean? Yeah. So you know we've got this little ten acre dilapidated lemon orchard, and what we want to do is um, we want to participate in it's called permaculture. And the idea is that everything has a function and it, it enriches the entire environment and uh, the animal life, the plant life, and the atmosphere together in unison. And so there, it seems like more and more the environmentalist argument out there is that humans are 100% the problem. When in reality, if you leave out human intervention in a lot of situations. What you have is desolation. In fact, just look at the community that we're in. If we didn't have human intervention, we wouldn't have all these beautiful um, crops that are growing. We wouldn't have all the animals that are sustained. We wouldn't have the economy, and we wouldn't be able to provide for families as well as the animal life that is thriving in this valley because of the canals that we've created and because of the dams that we've put in with the Colorado River, all that water would be rushing through, carving, you know, deeper and deeper canyons. And that's about it as it makes its way to the ocean in the Gulf of California. And why? Why not use it and to make the, the desert bloom like a rose? And so that's what I would like to do. I would like to put into practice what I'm actually talking about and have animals where they're eating the grass on the, on the lemon orchard that's already there. And then they, they have uh, 
natural fertilizer with their urine and their feces, and that's creating better grass growing conditions. And it the water that's used is less because it's the soil is richer. It's it's more carbon dense. It's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Now whether that's a good or bad thing is another debate, but it is doing that because. Um, highly rich carbon dense soil produces more plants and the more plants produces healthier animals and then I can use those animals for self-sufficiency in case the grocery stores have a break in the supply chain then I can rely on my own farm animals to do that and I'm also I'm a big uh, advocate for life in general I human life animal life plant life all life on earth I think that's what the earth was created for particularly human life because I am a Christian and I believe that the earth was created for mankind. But all animals and plants were placed in the stewardship of man and we we have an obligation to use that um, very wisely and, and not waste it. And so I want to actually do and implement the policies that I preach. I wonder if everybody, especially the socialists and the environmentalists, um, the loudest voices out there for those um, for those policies would practice the same thing if they would be as convinced about their policies because we've got um, you know John Kerry who he's out there and he's flying around in his jet and his carbon footprint individually is is a hundred a thousand times larger than any other person. Why don't you live what you're preaching? Stop wearing clothes that are byproducts, petroleum byproducts. Stop driving in cars and flying in jets that use gas and jet fuel. Stop doing those things that uh, you are preaching are so bad and the rest of us should stop doing. If you want the industry to stop producing the product, then stop using the product. Put a boycott on the product. Let's have your whole movement put a boycott individually on the product that you think should not exist anymore and see how well it works for you. I think the same could be said for their socialistic ideas. If you like socialism and you want to give to the poor, give to the poor. Nobody is stopping you from giving to the poor and uh, seeing how well that will cycle back up through the chain. But don't force the rest of us to do what you want and then you live your life however you see fit. And, and that's the problem with all these big advocates, both on the environmentalist side and on and the government side is they want to preach to us that we should do and change our actions, but they shouldn't apply it to themselves first. We all know that actions speak louder than words and true leaders lead by example. Do what you're preaching. If it works, show us that you're, you're, you're happier and you're more productive or you have a more fulfilled life. But if you can't show us that, then stop telling us and guilting us into um, changing our actions because it's, in, in the end, your words fall flat and, and truth comes out, just like it has it with COVID and every other scare that they've put out there. Absolutely. We hope you've uh, enjoyed the show. We've got another one coming up next Monday. Before we go, we just want to remind you that are listening that we've got upcoming seminars this uh, coming week on the 12th. That's a Thursday at the Yuma Main Library at 1030 in the morning. If you can't make it to that one, then we invite you out to the Foothills Library on on uh, February 13th. That's Friday the 13th. It's a lucky. It's your lucky day. Come and see us at 1030 out at the Yuma Foothills Library. And we'll be doing another seminar out there. Uh, we had great luck with these and, and a great time last time uh, last month when we did this. There was a great turnout. So come on out and see what your options are when it comes to legally planning for your family. 
um, and what we can do for you. And again, Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next Monday. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.